Good morning, Redemption Tempe. Well, my name is uh, Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Redemption Tempe, and we wanted to welcome you, welcome you to worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we are a church that's a multi-congregational church that stretches from, we've got six congregations, one way out in a gateway over by the Mesa Gateway Airport, and it stretches down to Arcadia, and we, we are here at Tempe, somewhere in between. So uh, we wanted to welcome you here with us, and uh, we wanted to emphasize the fact that we are a church that makes disciples that live all of life, all for Jesus. And so I'm going to start off this morning with some announcements that really get at the heart of that. Uh, first of all, I wanted to announce um, we have, we're starting First Wednesdays again. So on September 4th, which is going to be the first Wednesday of September, we're coming to this room at 6.30. We'll have dinner available, and we're going to talk about sports. First Wednesdays are the night where we gather once a month to talk about an issue of where faith intersects with culture. And for many of us, we enjoy sports, we've participated in sports, but we haven't often reflected on the question of, does God care about sports? And if he does, how do we participate in sports in a way that gives glory to God, either as fans or people who play sports? So we really encourage you to come here, listen to Tyler Johnson speak, listen to some journalists uh, who cover sports and some athletes talk about sports and culture and how it intersects with our faith. So again, that's September 4th here in this room, 6.30 p.m. Uh, the second announcement I wanted to share with you is that during our Building a Stronger Church campaign, we talked about uh, so what some of the money was going to go towards. And we talked about the importance of renovating and, and taking care of the children's ministry building, which was formerly in some pretty bad shape, to be honest. But you guys came through. The giving was a, a very fruitful, successful uh, series that we went through. And so we wanted to report to you that the children's ministry building is just about complete um, with the renovations. And we wanted to invite you next week after this service, so it'll be at 12.30 p.m., uh, to take a tour and to, to just explore the open house that we'll have for the children's ministry building. So next week, 12.30 p.m., right after this service. Um, and as we've been doing every week, we've been doing these all-of-life interviews. And it's been really enjoyable to talk to accountants and uh, microbiologists and different people and ask how they are living out their living out the gospel in the different spheres of life that God has put them in. And sometimes what we do is we, we, we deviate from vocation because these are all-of-life interviews, not just vocation interviews. And so we wanted to interview San, Sandy Schrader, if you could come on up here. Go ahead and give her a hand. And, and what we're interviewing her about is something that's that's pretty exciting. We've been praying about this for a while. How could we serve the women of Redemption Tempe? And we've kind of landed on something. So it's going to be a gathering where we get together once a month. Uh, not we, because I won't be there, but you women would be there. Um, at, uh, um, on the second Wednesday of the month. Um, and there's some more details to it. But I'm going to let Sandy kind of tell her story first and then give us the details. Yeah, good morning, everybody, and thanks, Jim. Um, 
I, God saved me when I was 39 years old, and I was a single mom at the time, and still am a mom, but not single any longer, but um, single mom, career woman, I was training and competing in um, half Ironmans across the United States, and, and God broke me and saved me, and I was, my life was transformed, but as I began my walk and as I began to love Jesus more and more, I had so many questions about how do you do this godly woman thing? Like, how how does that look? And what's this thing on submission? And am I supposed to wear dark drab turtlenecks and no more no more bling? You know, I, I had no, no idea. Like, what do I do? How do you how do you take what scripture says? And, and your love for Christ, and how do you live that out? And I think all of us have that question, um, but for women, I think it, it, we have it perhaps even more because we're so concerned about our appearance and, and things like that. So anyway, so um, after I was saved and, and, and dove into Scripture and all of that, God put wonderful women in my life to help mentor me, to disciple me, and at the same time has given me the opportunity to work with other women in their walk and in their journey with Christ. And so um, I just have this love and this passion to to really begin to explore that um, with, with all of you women here. And so that's where we're at. That's great. Well, would you tell us what it's going to look like and the details involved with it? Yeah, um, as Jim said, we will be meeting pretty much once a month, um, a similar schedule to the first Wednesdays, but for our women, we will be on second Wednesdays. We will meet in the morning uh, from 10 o'clock to 12, and then again, exact same content, a second session in the evening from 6.30 to 8.30. And the reason we're doing two different two different segments, two different sessions of that is because we really want to make it available to all women, whether you're working, whether you're in school, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you just really like to sleep late and you're more of an evening person. Um, so with the two, two segments um, will be exactly the same content. You're welcome to attend both. Maybe you want to come in the morning, check it out, and then bring some friends in the evening. That's all good. We will have child care both times, and we are asking if you um, will be bringing kids that you RSVP. You don't have to register to attend, but we do need to know um, as we're kind of getting a handle on numbers and how many um, how many uh, children will have at this. We do need to know that. So as it gets closer, we'll have information on the website, the Facebook, the city, all of that. You'll have the opportunity to RSVP for child care. And, um, and our goal is really to just have a great time coming together as women, talking and discussing culturally relevant things, talking about what, what it means to be a godly woman um, and how we, how we have that walk, how we go about that. Um, uh, two big points. One, RSVP for child care. Secondly, and, and women get this. Um, when, when we think about women's ministry, a lot of us will think about wearing a dress or you have to do this or you have to do that. Um, come as you are. If you are coming from the office and you're in a business suit, that's great. If you are coming from working out or 
um, dropping your kids off someplace, whatever it is, feel comfortable coming as you are. And that also puts the responsibility on all of us women to not judge for those that come in really dressed up or really not dressed up. Um, to really make it an, an, a fun and engaging and comfortable environment for everyone. That's great. So in summary, Redemption Women, second Wednesday, feel free to wear a polo or not, or a, a turtleneck or not. The bling is your choice, whatever you want to do. Yeah, and so. if you have any specific questions or concerns, um, your, use the comment card um, and just put Redemption Women in your contact information, and I will get in touch with you um, if need be. Great. Thanks. Well, I'm going to pray for the women here, and then uh, Ricardo's going to come up. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for all of the women that you've brought to this congregation and how they are created in your image, how you love them, uh, we thank you for the many wise and sharp women uh, who reflect Christ. And we just pray that this would be a rich time of fellowship for them, a rich time of being formed more and more into the likeness of Christ. We thank you for them, and we thank you for what you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> you guys thank them again? Um, Sandy said if you had information with those uh, cards, just fill those out, and you can drop in the offering boxes later in our time of services, which are in the back by the doors. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, glad you could be here with us this morning. For the past 19, 20 weeks, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and we will be for, for a long time. Um, and so we're going to continue in that today, this morning. So if you have your Bibles, meet me in Romans chapter 4. Again, that's Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at a big section of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible... Raise your hand and keep it raised high, and then one of our fellows here will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we were handing out so that you can have a, a, a gift from us to you to grow in the understanding and knowledge of God's Word. Romans chapter 4. Let me just kind of catch us up to where we've, where we've been. Um, so far, what we saw is that this letter that was written to this church in Rome was written by a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul wrote this letter to this church, these people who he had not even met yet. But one thing Paul was passionate about, and one thing that he was overzealous about, was the good news of Jesus, the gospel. In fact, in chapter 1, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because he knows that it is the power of God for everyone who believes. And then he begins to unpack the understanding, a theological understanding of the gospel by letting us know our spiritual condition apart from God's sovereign intervention, and that we were separated from God. Both religious, those who try to do good works to earn their right before God, and irreligious, those who say that they don't believe in a God, are in the same boat in need of God to give them righteousness. And for the past several weeks, Paul's been saying this righteousness we receive. It's something that we receive by faith, that God by his grace, his unmerited favor gives us that we walk into. And so to communicate this justification by faith, what Paul has done is he's lifted up cultural um, idols, um, people, icons in the Jewish culture as he talks to a predominantly Jewish audience. The first person was Abraham. And he says, let me show you Abraham because the Jewish people were looking at Abraham as an example of how to live their life. And Paul says, he's not an example of how to live your life. He's an example of how to believe. He's an example of how to have faith in who God is. And then after that, he lifted up King David. And he says, King David is a man after God's own heart because of what he believed in God and what he believed about God. It was all about faith. 
And so where we have it now in Romans chapter 4, looking at verses 13 all the way to 25, which is easily our largest section of Scripture um, in Romans so far, we're not going to be able to cover everything in it, is that Paul is kind of climbed this mountain of justification by faith. And he's at the top of this mountain, and he's looking back and saying, let me kind of recap what a life of faith looks like. Um, Because he knows on the way down, starting next week, we're going to be looking at the implications of this faith, the implications of believing in the gospel. What does it mean to have hope? What does it mean to have hope in suffering? Those are the next two weeks. And so now he goes back to Abraham, and this time from a different perspective, from looking at Abraham not to be like Abraham, but to believe like Abraham. And he shows for us some things about Abraham that could be true of us. And that is when we trust in God's word. And so three things that I believe that Paul gives us in this large section of Scripture this morning is one, is God's promise to redeem. Two, his promise to fulfill. And three, his promise to persevere. Over and over in this section, you'll see the word promise. His promise to redeem, his promise to fulfill in his word, and his promise to persevere you through faith. Um, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Every single person you look up to, every single person that you esteem, every cultural icon is deeply flawed deeply flawed. I mean, every person that you know, every person that you look to, whether they be believers in Jesus Christ or not, are deeply flawed. And all you got to do is be around them a little bit longer or maybe enter into their life a little bit or read about them and you realize there's pockets and moments in their life that are not consistent with maybe what you know about them. This shouldn't be a surprise to us because most of us grew up with our parents, our mothers, our fathers, or our grandparents, and there was a moment in your, your, your walk with your parents that you realize these people ain't perfect, right? We've always had that, that moment that you realize, oh, man, my parents were really jacked up, right? Um, I remember the first time, my mom, for me, and you guys hear me talk about my mom a lot because she was that pillar of faith, and my mom, as I love her, she's not perfect, and, but in my mind, since I was born, my mom's been this, this woman who walked with God, and a woman of prayer, and a woman of faith, and I remember being about 12, maybe 12, 13 years old, and she was on the phone talking to somebody, and then she dropped like this swear word, right? And you know, you ever had that moment where you're like, oh. I was like, oh, right? <laughs> like, did she really just say that, right? And at the moment, you're like, oh, my mom swears? Are you kidding me? Oh, no, my family, my life is ruined. I'm never going to go to college or anything, right? And it's like, it's like it's over. No, honestly, I mean, in that moment, I was thinking, wow, so I could say that too. But I mean, like, <laughs> the humanity shows, no matter who it is. One, one of my favorite rappers, uh, Propaganda, who you should all get to know, but um, he, he um, writes this song called Precious Puritans. Now, the premise of this song is saying that people, uh, mainly Reformed pastors, that they would take the teachings of the Puritans and the life of the Puritans and then pedestal these people. And so if you're not familiar with the Puritans, the Puritans in American history, and especially American Christian history, were were these men and women who came here from Europe that established Christian colonies and, and started universities like Princeton, and they did these incredible things in the name of God and the name of Jesus, 
But what propaganda says is just let me just let you know as godly as they were, and even though their theology was really good, just understand for certain people, um, um, particularly of his particular skin color, propaganda was African-American, said, hey, I, I, don't, I think you need to know some things about the Puritans. They, they, they were chaplains on a slave ship. Meaning, if they really understood the gospel, how come they didn't knock on their neighbor's doors and say, hey, you know, you can't own slaves? And as he walks through this song, he gets to the point of saying, they're just people of faith. And he goes, and that's where we quote these people. And and then he says, and that's why I don't like it when people quote me, even though I'm doing it right now. (laughs) 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 Whatever, you shouldn't have wrote a song. (laughs) And and then he comes to this point, he says... uh, I guess it's true that God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. I guess it's true that God uses crooked sticks like me, like the Puritans, like you, like all, like Abraham, like every single person who would believe in God by faith. Deeply flawed people that we walk through Romans 1 and we walk through Romans 2 talking about by faith God uses. And Abraham is no different, and you and I are no different, and any person in this room that would trust in Christ Jesus is no different, that God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. And so what Paul does now in taking Abraham and says, we've already exposed Abraham's weaknesses, but what was his strength? What made Abraham unique? What makes you unique? What makes the people of God unique? Is it what we do? Is it what we produce? Is it what we say? According to Paul and according to the Bible, it's not who we are, but it's in whom we believe. And so Abraham believed God, and he believed God's word, and he took him at his word. And so that's why that first point is saying it is he trusted God's promise to redeem. Read with me in verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. Let's talk about that promise first, that promise to redeem. We, we, I don't want to just assume that we all understand that promise. The promise that first came to Abraham came in Genesis chapter 12. As we recall, Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham wasn't in a church service. He wasn't at a camp. Abraham was minding his own business, and then God sovereignly intervened in his life. And he said, Abraham, I want you to go somewhere. I'm not going to tell you, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your name great, which I love that. And the reason why I love it is if you read the chapter that came before that in chapter 11, God um, scatters people, the Tower of Babel, because they were trying to, in their own efforts, make their name great. Many of us, we're trying to make names for ourselves, and God is saying, no, if you try to make a name for yourself, it's not going to work. However, if you trust in me, I'll make your name great. And the greatness that he talks about is not by accomplishments from you, but it's him working through you. And so the promise said, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And this child is going to be the, this child is going to have more children and more children. I'm going to give you descendants. And it's going to make up all nations, every tribe, every tongue, black, white, Asian, European, that God himself says, I have a plan to redeem this world. And it's a multicultural plan. Another part of the the promise was, you're going to have land, and I'm going to give you the land. And what we naturally think is he's talking about the land of Jerusalem because that was the promised land. But when you read through uh, the Bible, what you realize is that land in itself is a representation of the entire world. So God's promise to this man and through this man, Abraham, at the time his name was Abram, 
And God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless the entire world and that you will, your descendants will live in. And then the third part of the promise was that you will be the medium of this blessing to the world, meaning you will be what I work through. The people of God I will work through. This was God's plan for redeeming the world is that he would work within human history in and through broken people like you and like me and like Abraham. What Paul says is, this promise of God to redeem, it didn't come through the law. If you recall, the law was something that was given to Moses, and the law in itself, when God promised Abraham, was nowhere around. The law came 400 and 430 years later when Moses showed up in the scene. And what Paul is saying is these Jewish people is, you are trying to make yourself right before God through your obedience. Your obedience to the law, and it goes, the law will not save you. Your good works will not make you right. Your showing up on a Sunday service does not make you clean before the Lord. It cannot redeem you. Here's what Paul says in verse 14. For if the adherents of the law who are to be, if it's the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here's what he's saying. If it's just ethnic Jewish people that are to receive the world, this promise of redemption, if it's just people who could live up to these beautiful laws of God, then he says in the, the promise of faith, it's void. Literally, it means it's empty. It's an empty promise. He, he, he's trying to make the point of saying you, what he's been saying for the week after week after week is you can't get right with God. And he says because the law brings wrath, because it exposes something. The law, as beautiful as it is, is God's standards. And they are God's standards. But the thing about it is his standards are way too high for us. We cannot reach them no matter how hard we try. Some of us are better than others, but none of us reach his standards. And so Christianity is not about us climbing up the ladder trying to make it to God. What Paul is saying is Christianity is God leaving the comforts of heaven and coming to us. And it's something we receive by faith. And so he's trying to make that point that it is not about what you do that makes you right before God. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. Or you've ever said that, I need to get right with, I need to get right with God, I need to get right with God. What, what happened this weekend and what will happen throughout the next couple days is thousands of people are going to be moving um, into our city. Also to Phoenix and also to Mesa as well as Glendale because school starts this week, ASU starts this week. And so there's going to be thousands of thousand kids that are coming from all over the country and all over the world that are going to come. Some may come from families that have taught them the true gospel, but many will come not having anything to know about the gospel. Many will come from church families and still not understand the gospel. Hear me, let me say that again. Many will come from church families and really not understand the gospel. And I say that from my own experience. When I moved out here 13 years ago, when I got on campus, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to live like a good Christian, which, by the way, is an oxymoron. Um, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to live like a good Christian, because, and, and I, I, you know, in high school I tried, but then, you know, I got distracted. And so, but now when I get to college, and of all places, I thought, the easiest place to be a Christian, ASU, right? So I came here, <laughs> and so I, I get on campus, and I'm like, I'm going to try to live like a Christian. Um, I went and got the, the WWJD bracelet. Remember when those things were up, like, what would Jesus do, right? It was like, yeah, what would Jesus do? I'm a Christian right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this thing right. It took me all of not even a day to make a decision with God, I'm not going to do this. 
Because here's why. What, what was um, the potential that was there? And when I say potential, I mean the potential to do basically anything at ASU. And so the potential that was drawing me to a lifestyle um, that I knew was the antithesis of gospel living was so much more powerful and real to me than getting right with Jesus. And some of us, that may not be your exact experience, but when it comes to the world, when it comes to sin, when it comes to any lifestyle apart from following Jesus... It's way more powerful often because we're not really understanding the gospel. Getting right with Jesus is not the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that brings power. When you understand that God so desperately when you understand that God realizes that the objects of his affections are his people, that he sent his son Jesus, and that the gospel, like Paul says, is the power of God, now you realize there, there's, a, there's a legitimacy of walking with Christ. And this is not about me getting right. The reason why many of us don't grow in our faith is because we are, a, we are, we are looking to Jesus' words. We may be looking to what Jesus says to do. We may know everything that we're supposed to do, but we're not drawing from the power of his life. We're, we, we, we become doers, but not believers. And some of us, we're just exhausted because that's what the law does. But the law exposes the problem that if you don't have true repentance, if you don't understand the gospel, that there's wrath. So Paul is saying, this promise of God to redeem the world, this promise does not come from you getting right with God. This promise comes from a love that is so precious, that is so amazing, that is so beautiful of God desiring to make you right before himself. And Paul says this in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offsprings. He says the promise rests on grace. It is to be received by faith, which is the instrument of which we receive the promise and blessings of God to be rest, to rest on grace. So here's what this looks like. It looks like the people of, of the church, right, God's people, the, God's kingdom people, or not people who are trying to make their names great, who are not uh, majoring in their accomplishment, who are not majoring in what they can say or think, as beautiful as those things may be, but people who rest in grace. And what it means to rest in grace is to realize you can't get right with God. And when you realize that you can't get right with God, that's the very beginning of God being able to redeem and work in your life. He uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. It used to be in basketball that when you got fouled, or excuse me, when you fouled somebody else, like you committed a crime, but it was just a foul. Um, you, when, you, when you made a foul, you'd have to raise your hand up, and then you have to turn around and so they can see your number and your name and mark you down. And then after that, that wasn't a rule anymore, but people would still do it. Whenever they would foul, they'd raise their hand. Now, not many people do it, but I've always loved the picture of when a basketball player fouls and goes, dang it, and they just raise their hand, kind of let everybody else know in the stands, everybody and watching on TV, it was me, Right? And I just thought, okay, if it rests on grace, if this promise, God's promise to redeem people, is not on works, is not on how good we are, how good churchgoers we are, but him, then the church, God's people, should be made up full of men and women and children who constantly have their hands up saying, God, I can't. God, it's my fault. I'm broken. I'm wounded. I'm hurt. 
It's not my parents' fault. It's not my upbringing. It's, it's not my schooling. It's not my neighborhood. It's not my skin color. All those things, they do provide real context and real harm and real wounding. I understand that. But when it comes down to it, Lord, it's me. And I need Jesus. And that begins to create a community who rests on this grace. What was unique about Abraham is that he trusted God. What's unique about the church is that we trust God, is that we believe and we we trust in his promise to redeem, and that this promise is a guaranteed, as Paul says, to redeem all who would come in repentance and faith. Amen? What What I love about the Apostle Paul is Paul doesn't just stop there with believe in Jesus, that's it. Paul doesn't stop there and say he's promised to redeem and he redeems you by faith and you come as is, but he understands that God never leaves you as is. He'll take you as you are. He doesn't say clean up your, your act. He doesn't say change your language. He just says come, but when you come to him and you experience his grace, this grace begins to transform you. And here is another promise. And this promise is actually from Jesus, is that when you enter into this relationship with God, when you believe in this promise of him to redeem, life's not promised to be perfect. Sometimes I think what we do is we take our ideals of what it means to have a good sales pitch and we take our good salesmanship and we take it to our evangelism and we tell people, looks like your life's kind of jacked up. You know what you need? You need a little bit of this Jesus. I got some over here actually. And then uh, believe in Jesus and it'll make you better. Believe in Jesus and it'll make you better. Now, vertically, it may obviously make you right before God, but it doesn't mean your life's going to be completely better. It doesn't mean that somehow everything's going to go well for you. In fact, think of Jesus' words here when he says this, promise from Jesus' words. In this world, speaking to those who follow him, in this world, those who love him, you will have tribulation. Take hold, I've overcome the world. But he says, but know this, you will have tribulation. So Paul points out, not only does God promise to redeem, but he also promises to fulfill. And when I say promise to fulfill, we got to understand Abraham's situation. Sometimes we get so impressed with conversion stories. We get so impressed with someone who comes out of a particular background that believes in Jesus that we don't take the time to see the rest of that life. That sometimes we get so um, obsessed with just seeing maybe your kid or someone come to know Jesus, which is amazing, and we don't walk alongside to be honest with them like the scriptures in about, hey, it's probably going to get really rough from here, and there's going to be moments where it's really hard, but you can still trust in God. When Abraham understands God's promise to fulfill, he believes in God. He says, all right, I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my family and take my wife with me. And you said we're going to have a kid, and they don't have a kid. And he's afraid. I mean, the language that you read about it, he's afraid. He's like, God, are you going to do this? There's doubts. You don't think there's a man. There's not a man of God or a woman of God who's never had doubts. There's not a man of God. There's not a woman of God who is not afraid of something. What bothers me is, and especially in a culture growing where we need to reach, quote unquote, more than men and be more masculine, we get a lot of men that don't want to acknowledge their fear. And guys, that, that's not manly. That's, that's, I want to say it correctly, stupid. <laughs> Here's why. Fear has an ability to do something in our life when we acknowledge it. Fear, when you, I mean, all of us have fears. We have fears of our, of our wives leaving us. We have fears of our kids dying on us. We have fears of getting laid out. We all have fear. Just acknowledge it. Because here's what it does. It acknowledges two things. It shows, one, <laughs> you're not God and that you need help. 
Abraham, in Genesis 15, he comes to God. He goes, hey, it's been three chapters, which in his life he doesn't know the chapters yet. But he goes, it's been three chapters. You said I was going to have a kid, and I don't have a kid. And I'm looking at this dude, Elazar, and he's not really that nice of a guy. And he's, just somebody, he's not even in my family. And he's going he's to receive everything. And God's like, no, you're going to have a child, a biological child. He trusts in the word of God. He trusts in his promises. Read with me in verse 17. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom you believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham looked at his situation and goes, okay, you said it's not going to be Eleazar. I'm glad. Didn't really like that kid. You said it's going to be my biological kid. And he says he began to believe that God can do impossible things, right? That God can do things that we can't even see, think, or imagine, And so what I want to be able to do as we unpack the second point of of God's promise to fulfill is help us in our discipleship understand three things. There are things that God can do, and there are things that God will do. And we need to know the differences. God can do anything. He's all-powerful. He is almighty. He is God and God alone. He is a healer. He is a restorer. He is a redeemer. He does save. He does provide in in normal ways and supernatural ways. He listens to the prayers of his people when they pray to him. God will always give you what you asked for or what you would have asked for if you would have known more, basically. Here's what I'm saying. There have been moments in this, and just in our congregation, where people have come to the elders of the church. Not that there's anything special from us, but his word says, bring the sick to the elders of the church. And we lay hands on them. We've seen God do incredible things. There, there's been moments where um, one particular college kid was in a coma, and his, uh, the doctor was telling his mom that he's going to be a vegetable his whole life, where God woke him up. And he's fine. He graduated college and went on to do, live his life. We've seen just, just God work through just, just normal people like you and me and we, because we believe that God can do it. And so every week when we say there's people up for, for prayer, it's not like, a, oh, who's getting up to get prayer? Man, everyone should be scattering to get prayer to say, God, do something. I got bills to pay. I got kids that are not saved. I got, I got relationships that need to be restored. God can do anything. Abraham believed that. So there's a difference, though, between what he can do and what he will do. Here's what I mean. Um, Just because God can do it doesn't mean that he's always going to do it. Because the same time we pray for someone to be healed, someone dies. And you and I know it. For the same time we pray for a marriage to be reconciled, and it is, two more marriages are broken. And we and I know it. And so it's not that God can't. He can, but in his own sovereign will, we don't know. He doesn't promise to always do it. And the reason why I want to make this delineation between what God can do, what he will do, is because there are people who will tell you and give you, when you don't know your Bible, and people will say, these are the promises of God, and they will give you maybe a particular promise that happened to maybe Abraham or David or someone in the Bible that's not universal to all God's people, and then you enter into a relationship with God under the pretense that God does these types of things, whatever those things are, and then when God hasn't given you the right car or the right house or the right spouse, or he allows your children or your mother to die, you go, this is not God. And it's like, listen, he never said that. He said in this world there would be tribulation. He can do. And then there are things that we need to grip onto that he will do. There are promises in his word where he will fulfill every time. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
He says, he, meaning Jesus Christ, who began a good work, will finish it to completion. God's not going to lose any of his children. That, that, that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That no matter how bad of a, of a, of a time or a stint or a period you have, and sin it seems to be having your throat, Paul says later in Romans 6, sin does not have dominion over you. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. And I think this should, this should be like a generational call for us. Because we're, many of us are not weary because, um, because of maybe life's pressure. We're weary because we are in a technological age where we can't shut off. We wake up and the first thing we do is check a phone, check our emails, check our Twitter, check our Facebook. We're busy and we get weary over just doing. Jesus says, no, 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 come to me. Come to me. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. And one of my favorites, one of my favorites in James, if you draw near, near to me, I will draw even near to you. I promise if you, come to, if you draw near to God, God's saying, I'm already there and I'm going to go even further. Like I'm going to top what you do. These are promises that he will do. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. These are promises that we cling to and say, God, you promised. Abraham knew the promises of God. And the promise was that he was going to have a baby and that he was going to have a son, a biological son. And here's what it says here. Trusting in God's promise to fulfill for Abraham, it was in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Um, Here's what happened. Abraham says, I know what you can do, God, but then you also said this specifically. You said that I'm going to have a biological kid, and so I'm just going to hold on to what you said because your word, your word, this is why it's massively important for us as Christians to understand God's word. To know what is it that God says. Again, reading the word doesn't make you right before God. By faith, he promises to redeem you. And by faith in his word, God promised to fulfill all that he said. In, in Abraham's case here, God's plan for redemption that was going to work through him was going to be able to have a child. And so Abraham looked at his situation and thought, this is not looking good. I mean, you guys have had that before where you've looked at your situation. You, you've looked at, can I trust God with my future? That's a fear. Like, will he bring the spouse? Will he bring the right kids? Will he bring in the job? Am I going to be, is it going to be summer forever in Arizona? Like, you, you, you think about, you think about these things. <laughs> you think about these things. You think about, man, how am I going to pay these bills? Um, whatever it may be, just, just moments where you're like, I am afraid. And again, it's in moments of those fear that you could be exposed and God can do some amazing things. There's a book I've been reading called Voices of the Heart where this guy is basically writing to men, basically, to help them understand how to understand their heart and listen to their hearts. And one of the things he says about fear here that I thought is amazing. Just wait. It takes a while. I mean, this is deep. So. Fear brings us strength. It is a feeling that allows us to experience risk, trust, dependency, collaboration, and ultimately wisdom because it helps us realize our need. When we only focus on our situation, it seems hopeless. It says, in hope, he believed against hope. Now, some of you English teachers are like, Paul, um, what are you saying, right? What he's saying is in hope and his trust in God's word. He believed against hope what he could see. This is not blind faith. 
Some people think that Christianity somehow, and some Christians teach that Christianity is anti-intellectual, mindless, baseless, blindless faith. No, no, no. It's rested on the assurance of what God has said and what God has done. He said he believed in hope, and in a sense, he believed in God's word. What he saw, he goes, it's ma- it matters, it's real, but if God says he's going to do something, I'm just going to trust he's going to do it. And he looked at his situation, and then you got you to think about it. Look at Abraham's situation. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, right, you're going to have a biological kid, like, right? And you guys all know how to have a biological kid. We've already talked about this before. Um, and, and Abraham's just like, God, you said, all right, because, like, you know, he's 100, right? He's like, a biological kid? And he goes, you sure? And he goes, yeah, a biological kid. He's like, what about a stork? And he goes, no, a biological, a biological kid. He goes, I'm 100, like, you know, like maybe back in my day, you know, but not now. And then he said he looked, he looked at his wife, and he says he looked at her barrenness. And the word that Paul uses there, it says the deadness of her womb. Like he's going, and my wife, she's a little bit younger than me, but there's nothing coming out of there. But you said it. You said it. What makes him unique? What makes us unique? It's not our physical situations. It's not even our circumstances. But the God in whom we serve in the midst of our physical situations, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our financial issues, in the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our fear, the God in whom we serve makes us pretty unique by trusting in him. And Abraham, it says, he, he believed God even though his situation was not there. He believed God's promise to fulfill. So Paul says, one, God promises to redeem all who would come by faith. God also promise, promises to fulfill that whatever he said he's going to do, he's going to do. And this last one is God's promise to persevere, meaning God's promise to grow us in our faith all the way to the end. He that begin a good work will finish it to completion. Um, here's what Paul writes in verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, that counted to him as righteousness. It comes up again. Now, I want to deal with something before we talk about his pr- promise of perseverance. Um, first, verse 20 says, no unbelief made him waver. And if you've been tracking along with it for the past few weeks, and we've been looking at Abraham exposing all his weaknesses, you're like, what? Did Paul not get the memo? Right? This dude had issues, right? And if you're just, just joining us, um, and basically what we saw is Genesis 12, God called Abraham. In the same chapter, they go to Egypt, and Abraham takes his wife. He's afraid of Pharaoh, and he goes, hey, why don't you take my wife? That was not what God had called. And then after that, um, Sarah comes in and goes, we're not going to have a kid biologically. Why don't you sleep with my maidservant, Hagar? And, and he's like, sure, why not? And so he slept with the servant, Hagar, and they had a kid. Okay, and you go, how could Paul say he didn't un- waver? How could he say there was no unbelief? Here, the word unbelief there could be better said disbelief. And here's what I mean. Paul is looking at the perspective of Abraham's life. God looks at our life not just in moments, not just in decisions, not just when we walk down an aisle or we signed a card. God himself looks at us through the lens of grace, and he has a divine perspective. And I think some of us need to understand that about our own lives and about those around us. Because what we do is we define our faith in moments, 
We, we define our faith in activity. We don't look at the totality of life. What Paul is saying is there was no unbelief, meaning there was never a moment, even in his hiccups, even in his hesitation, even in his sin, that he woke up the next morning and said, God is not God, I don't believe him. And we, we, we should get that. I shouldn't have to convince that. It's, if those of you in this room who are Christian, you know that your Christian life goes like this, right? And usually when people say, hey, how's your walk with God? You go, I'm doing really, really good. Why? Because I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm fasting. I'm at the second service. I went to the nine. I'm at the 1030, 1045, or to some people, 11. And so I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here again, right? And then how's your walk doing? Ooh, <laughs> and I ain't been to church in a minute, man. I'm, I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not praying. Um, and it becomes an activity. Or you feel like you're trusting in God. You're looking at the word of God and you're seeing what God says to do and you're doing it. And then there's moments where you just, there's moments where you come down here. And there's not a man in this room. There's not a woman in this room that hasn't blown it. You might not have, have, have blown it in ways that someone else you know, but you, you, you do. But there's, the, there's not, <laughs> you're not defined by those moments. A Christian is defined by one event in history. And that was the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guys, that never changes. That's never changing. You think about that? Like you're defined by his life, death, and resurrection, which could never change. Like what about if I, if I it never changes? What Paul is saying is his, uh, his even in, a walk with God is a long walk of, walk of obedience. It's not just a conversion, as beautiful as that is. It's a long walk. And God promises to persevere. That the way that God grows you is through faith. It is grace working through faith. That as long as you're continuing to look at the cross and the empty tomb, that God continues to grow you. And so here's what he says here, is that, yeah, he failed, just like you and I, but he was still a man of faith. The same way that you would be a man of faith or you would be a woman of faith, as every time you sin and even when you obey, that you're constantly looking to God. Paul says, no unbelief made him unwaver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And so God promises to persevere. How do we grow strong? Like this is a discipleship question. Like how do I grow strong in my faith? We've already said it's not about having big faith. It's not about having the size of your faith. It's the amount. Excuse me. It's not the amount. It's the object. You can have uh, faith like a mustard seed, but if the object is God, then you're doing good. But he says there's a way that you can even strengthen it. Well, how do you go about strengthening it? And here's an example. When I, um, this summer, we've been teaching my boys and taking them to swim lessons and then teaching them how to swim because I don't like the stereotype. And, um, <laughs> it's not true. I'm teaching them how to swim. <laughs> so there's, there's so, 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 so anyways, a little Jackie Robinson's of the swimming pool are sitting there. And then I have, I have Eli, who's my, my youngest. He's like afraid to jump in the pool. Like just jump in the pool. Daddy's going to catch you. And you guys have probably had that experience for with your dad or, you know, your friend, your, your roommate, which is weird, but you guys probably had that experience, right? And, and like jump, jump in the pool. And, and he's looking at me. He's shaking. You ever seen kids? They're wet. They're like little puppies, right? And they're just shaking. I'm like, buddy, I promise I will catch you. I promise. And you're giving them your word. And then finally, not in some bold faith, just in a, I kind of trust you. And I'm going to throw myself in there. And it's like one of the best moments because it, like a dog, eyes are wide open as they're coming. And it's like, you better catch me, right? <laughs> 
And when you catch them, most of the time, they're not excited. They're not like, woo, that was fun. No, my two-year-old like takes his nails and grips them into my back and like holds on as tight as he can, right? And it's like I whisper in his ears and I say, all right, let's do it again, right? And he doesn't want to do it, and he does it again. Well, now at the end of the summer, he just jumps. In fact, as long as I'm in the vicinity of the pool, he will jump, right? <laughs> because in his mind, is like, Dad, I know you're going to catch me. When it comes to strengthening in our faith, it is every walk we take trusting in God. Every step of obedience trusting in his word. Again and again and again that our habits begin to be formed that way. And so obedience in itself does not make us right before God. However, faith in him and his word as we obey and give him glory will strengthen. And again, you got to know his word. So just real short, if you want to know how do I grow in faith with God, look at what God says to do and then do it again and again and again. Trust the work of the Spirit to grow you in that and give glory to God. If God says do it, do it. It's as simple as that. If God says do it, I'm going to trust. Even when it doesn't look right, even it doesn't seem like it's culturally cool to do this anymore or no one does this anymore, is that old-fashioned and traditional? It's God's word which never changes and he promises through his word by faith to persevere you. Amen? The church should not be full of immature Christians. The church should have immature unbelievers who are trying to figure it out and many mature women and men of God who were discipling each other. Amen? Well, what, I, what I love about the story of Abraham and how Paul points to Abraham is that he just doesn't leave it with Abraham. Paul is very Christological, meaning everything is about Jesus. And the reason why I, we, we know that is because we read the Bible. If you can recall, a few weeks ago, we mentioned the Hall of Faith, which is um, Hebrews chapter 11, and there's all these men and women that are mentioned in the Old Testament of faith. You get to the end of that list, and it says they all, though believing in God, their life was not complete, meaning they were missing something, meaning they trusted in his promise, but they didn't have the fullness of it that now we have. Meaning Abraham, as much as he believed in God's word, God's promise to redeem and to fulfill and to persevere, we have something better, the writer of Hebrews says. Because what God did to show forth just a glimpse, just a bit of his promise, was he gave Abraham that son. His name was Isaac. And so Abraham can go, yes, God, you fulfilled. I can trust you're going to redeem the world because you gave me a biological son. What Paul in the writer of Hebrews says is we have something even better. Because God gave Abraham his biological son, but in his love for us, he gave us his own son. And he offered him up so that now as we believe in him, we understand there's a promise to redeem. As we believe in him and his word, we know the promise to fulfill everything that he says. And as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we understand in Christ, he now works through us to persevere our faith. And so we look to Jesus and Jesus alone as a community of faith to realize it is God himself by the Holy Spirit because of the work of his son, Jesus, that takes a bunch of crooked sticks and makes straight lines. Amen? I want to close with reading the last part of this section, speaking of Jesus. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray.